electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on our podcast. One full year since the United States' first confirmed case of COVID. Where we are, where we're going, and when it'll all be over. CNBC's Meg Terrell. A lot of experts pointed to this miracle of two vaccines that we have for this virus, and it shows that if we put the funding into the science, we can do this really quickly. And funding indeed. State leaders weigh the pros and cons of President Biden's executive actions and his nearly $2 trillion plan. New Hampshire Governor Sununu is hoping for more flexibility from the White House. We're cutting taxes across the board. We have a very strong economy. We've kept our COVID numbers low. I'm a big believer 2021 is going to be a great, great summer. Plus, big tech's roadmap under new leadership, Axios reporter Sarah Fisher on politics, platforms, and publishers. The problem, though, Andrew, when it comes to Section 230 is that while there's bipartisan consensus we need to tackle it, there is no consensus about what we would replace it with. It's Thursday, January 21st, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. And the U.S. Equity. Today on the podcast, we mark the calendar. January 21st is the one-year anniversary of the first confirmed case of the novel coronavirus in the United States. One year of our new lives and our new language, social distancing, vaccine distribution. 24 and a half million Americans have been infected with the virus, and more than 400,000 have died. A single-day death toll in the United States hit a new high yesterday of more than 4,400 people, according to the COVID tracking project. Although new cases and hospitalizations are showing signs of leveling off in the last week after that post-holiday surge. President Biden's new CDC director speaking out about the fight against the pandemic. Dr. Rochelle Walensky called for rapid acceleration in COVID testing and vaccination. She said officials will review all current guidance that's been issued under the Trump administration and update if needed. We recognize this is a and the most immediate emergency to get this country back to health. Um, there are numerous plans as we think forward as to how we're going to get people vaccinated. Meantime, in New York City, officials had to reschedule 23,000 vaccine appointments from this week because of a supply shortage. The city has fewer than 90,000 first doses left and will reportedly hit zero by Friday. We keep hearing in some places it's the supply on the shelf that's not making it out. That's not the case in New York City. And Arnold Schwarzenegger has received the COVID vaccine as well. The former California governor posted a video of the jab on Twitter and encouraged others to get it as well. At the end of the video, he said with his usual flourish, come with me if you want to live. Joe. Come with me if you want to live. I guess that's from, that's when he was a good Hasta guy. Hasta la vista, baby. Well, that's when yeah. he was a good guy. So that must have been in, in the second yeah. one. When he came back yes. and he thought, oh, no, there he is. But the bad guy was that other guy with the ears, uh, Robert Patrick, because uh, of his haircut. And he was like in a cop outfit, remember? Um, I don't know I what do Arnold was in the third one, and then the fourth and fifth. Uh, anyway, Amazon is offering uh, the, meanwhile, the new administration help 
in its bid to distribute COVID vaccines. CNBC's learned that President Biden received a letter from the company's CEO of Worldwide Consumer Business saying that it's ready to leverage its operations to help the administration with its goal of vaccinating 100 million Americans in the first 100 days of the administration. The offer uh, comes as the company tries to get priority access to vaccines for its frontline workers. Troubling story from New York running out. I don't know. If you don't have it, you can't use it, I guess. So uh, logistically. I mean, we know I, that I, there's I a lot of different places, shortage pla along the line where there's a problem. Getting it into the arms, yeah. that last inch has been a problem. But if you're running out of supply, that's not a case where the states aren't giving everything. It's just we need more. There is demand, at least in some areas. There's some pretty deep demand for wanting to get this vaccine. That was a drive-through uh, dispenser that, that we saw, right? That I like I that. That I haven't seen. Yeah. Just, yep. Well, yep. No, that's, that's happening around the country. The, the big question is you're going to start to see, and you're seeing it with Amazon and others, big companies make the case that they should not only be prioritized to some degree, but also that they should be the ones that, that ultimately do the distribution for their own employees and that they can do it quickly. So, for example, if you're Walmart, ostensibly, you could, you could get, you know, uh, the jab in hundreds of thousands of arms, you know, literally in the course of a, a week, if not sooner, right. or an Amazon or the like. Uh, I think you're going to start to see businesses make that case. The question, of course, is whether uh, people are going to say they're jumping the line. The question is, should some of them jump the line? You, know, should, you can look at some of the, the folks out of Walmart. You can make an argument working, for being front have been on the front line throughout Amazon, who's kept yeah. so much of the, the country uh, moving. You know, then the question Walmart. is, should they be prioritized? Shouldn't they be prioritized? Do they act as vectors unto themselves because they are out in the community in a way that others aren't? And I, I think these are some of the, the hard questions that, that a lot of started, folks should be grappling whoever with. Whoever started and to jump the line, you know, shaming. I, I think you got to err on the other side of that whole thing. Everybody needs a jab. Anybody that gets a jab, be happy they got the jab. Uh, it's, you know, to stigmatize it like that, it's, it, it doesn't surprise me, given the, where we are in the world right now in terms of everyone pointing at every, wait a second, you, 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 did you do this? Did you? I mean, given the whole cancel well, culture. Well, you see the problems in New Jersey. You see the problems in New Jersey. We had Governor Murphy on last week. He was on Shep Smith last night again. About half of the number of doses that have been allocated are still sitting on the shelves because they are allocated for patients who are in nursing homes. We're trying homes to get to, who right, we're trying to, get to herd some immunity. Of the biggest morbidity. Right. We're, trying, we're facing some of the biggest morbidity, but they haven't been able to vaccinate those people in a timely manner. So right. it, it does get down to the how quickly can you do this? Do you really want doses sitting around on the shelf? And it's an argument that we're going to see popping up again and again, at least until you can get more vaccinations out there. And that's that's what we're hoping for. If you believe it breaks the chain of transmission, then whoever you give it to, you're hopefully yeah. at least maybe it doesn't break it. We don't have the science. People always write in. But then why are we doing it if we don't have the science that it prevents you know, the well, you're still protecting at least the person who gets the shot. Hopefully, people and around them too. Breaking the but chain. We, we are expecting additional science on that in the next week or two. We should have some some of the results of tests that have been focused on just that. Yeah. Some of the trials.
Early this morning, the Biden administration released details of the new president's COVID-19 response plan, including executive orders to ramp up testing in the pace of vaccinations and directing federal agencies to use wartime powers, the Defense Production Act it's called, to require U.S. companies to make N95 masks, swabs, and other PPE. All this happens at a pivotal moment in the course of this virus. Here's CNBC's Meg Terrell with what we've learned about COVID-19. Nearly one year to the day since the CDC announced the first case of COVID on U.S. soil. That was January 21st, 2020, and this was before it was even called COVID. It was 2019 novel coronavirus at that time. Since then, of course, the country has recorded 24 million cases, and they have just started accelerating over the last few months. I reached out to 10 experts across public health, medicine, industry, and business for their reflections on the year behind us and the lessons that we've learned. And Dr. Paul Offit, a vaccine expert and infectious disease professor at CHOP in Philadelphia, saying it's not the winter respiratory virus that it was built to be. It is much more far-reaching and dangerous than that. Guys, but in that year, of course, we've also seen the rapid development of medicines and vaccines. We now have two medicines on the market for early disease and those antibody drugs from Regeneron and Eli Lilly. Got at least three medicines being used in the hospitalized setting from dexamethasone to Gilead's remdesivir. Uh, and another one from Eli Lilly, and of course those two vaccines that are on the market, three more following uh, in phase three trials. Uh, But those reflections uh, from these experts really focusing on both what we've learned about the virus itself. Remember at the beginning, we were all wiping down our groceries because we thought this spread by droplets and spread like the flu. Uh, the realization that this could spread through the air and how much of it is asymptomatic, um, many experts pointed to as really important, as well as, of course, the politicization of public health and the importance of leadership um, from the national level. Um, you know, Scott Gottlieb telling us the importance of public-private partnership and really focusing on the failures of testing in the early stages, saying that the refusal of CDC to pivot early to engage commercial labs and commercial test kits left us blind to the early spread. He said it was a historic failure. Uh, But guys, on a brighter note, uh, a lot of experts pointed to this miracle of two vaccines that we have for this virus. And it shows that if we put the funding into the science, we can do this really quickly. Guys. Yeah, the, the scientific advances have been absolutely amazing, Meg. And, and, and clearly we continue to have some stumbles and some um, some tricky points as we try and figure out how to get those vaccinations into everybody's arms. Let, let's talk few, through a few things. First of all, um, the Biden administration saying that they are now concerned, we're hearing from reports, that things could be spiraling out of control, that we're not getting the vaccines out quickly enough, that there are these new strains developing. How much faith should we put in a diagnosis like that versus the idea that we have these vaccines? Can we get it out more quickly? What, what do you think? Well, everybody I talk to is concerned about these uh, new variants uh, that we are seeing in the United States, particularly B117, the one associated with the UK. You know, the CDC coming out expecting mm-hmm. that that could be the dominant strain come March. I talked to Mike Osterholm at the University of Minnesota, who agrees um, that this poses a real problem. Um, and it emphasizes how we need to do the vaccinations more quickly. You know, we've been hearing that the Biden team is concerned about the plan that was left in place. I am very eager to get to hear from them as they have said they're going to get in there and actually get an inventory of what the situation is, where all the doses are, and start to give more clear guidance on supply. That is something we've heard from states and from hospitals. They need to know what is coming and when so that they can plan. You know, in New York City, thousands of people are getting their appointments canceled this week because they ran out of 
vaccines. So just better planning and better use of data. Um, we'll be very eager to hear from the team how they plan to manage that. I think that's a huge concern. The New York City issue where they're running out of it versus New Jersey, where they have you know, hundreds of thousands of doses that are sitting on the on the on the shelf because they're waiting. They have been already guaranteed to people who are going to be uh, vaccinated in nursing homes, which you understand you want them vaccinated first. But if that's the case, let's do this. I mean, I, I, that's it's so frustrating to, to hear of doses sitting on the shelf. At the same time, it's so frustrating to hear that these people who thought they were going to get doses aren't going to get them and their appointments are being canceled. Is, is that what it takes? Just better coordination on a federal level for this? So much of this is logistics. And, you know, as we were covering Operation Warp Speed and the incredible pace of development of these vaccines, that was one feat in itself. But we've heard the phrase the last mile so many times. And now we are seeing just absolutely how important that is. One of the interesting things that the Biden team lays out here in its plan is to establish a contact for every state um, to, you know, be talking with their COVID you know, response team, COVID response liaisons for every state, a model they say is based on the response to Hurricane Sandy. And from the conversations that I've had with health leaders, you know, at the hospital level, um, at the, you know, in the state offices, they're just trying to figure out who to talk to at HHS. You know, sometimes they said they didn't know who to get an answer from. And so having that direct communication, knowing who your person is, uh, the COVID response to the federal level, when you're getting offered more resources, um, there's a hope, of course, that will speed things up and straighten out all these bumps that we've been hearing about in this last mile. Meg, thank you. Um, always a font of information. We appreciate it. And we'll talk to you soon. Coming up on Squawk Pod, getting into the details of President Biden's first moves to combat the coronavirus pandemic and how state leaders are responding to all the caveats of a trillion plus dollar plan from the White House. New Hampshire Governor Chris Sununu. What they're trying to do is get a political win on something that isn't a fundamental problem, in this, in, at least in, in New Hampshire right now. We'll be right back. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. Here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. President Biden getting right to work yesterday. He signed more than a dozen executive actions soon after being sworn in. Today, on this January day, my whole soul is in this, bringing America together, uniting our people, uniting our nation. And I ask every American to join me in this cause. His administration released details of his plan to fight the pandemic, including 10 new executive orders for that and so much more. I want to get over straight to Eamon Javers this morning in Washington. Eamon. Here's the details inside these 10 executive orders. Uh, they're going to expand the vaccination process, uh, testing and supplies and PPE. They're going to use the Defense Production Act uh, to do that if they have to. Uh, one of the things that we're going to see under this is FEMA 
opening federal vaccination centers. That's not something we've seen so far. They're also going to work, they say, with pharmacies around the country to make sure that the vaccine gets out uh, to the point at which people can get shots in their arms. Uh, They're also going to have a plan here for reopening schools and daycare centers. Biden says this is one of the keys to his COVID response and economic response is getting those schools open within the first 100 days of his administration uh, and really putting the schools in a position to be able to do that safely. They're also going to direct OSHA to develop standard COVID safety guidelines for workplaces. That, they say, is so important because you've really seen a hodgepodge of responses as different workplaces uh, have tried to figure this out on their own. Different states have tried to figure this out on their own. Uh, What the Biden team is saying here is this is going to be a whole-of-government response, uh, a very vigorous national, federal-level response in stark contrast to what they say we saw from the Trump administration, which was deferring a lot of these decisions or all of these decisions uh, down to the states uh, and local areas. This is going to be the federal government stepping in. They say a lot of it will be uh, sort of modeled on uh, what we saw in the response to Hurricane Sandy uh, in terms of FEMA and the local and state agencies all working together from a federal, national uh, and local level, Andrew. So a lot coming up here at the Biden White House. Eamon, let's just talk about the implications for using the Defense Production Act. It's something that people have talked about using for a long time. President Trump did not want to use it. President Biden now saying he will. What kinds of companies do you imagine that they are going to be going to and saying you are going to be manufacturing X, whether that be masks, whether that be uh, gloves, whether that be other types of PPE uh, or, or, or some of the materials required for testing and the like? What, what are we talking about here? Yeah, it's a great question. And if you go through this fact sheet and and some of the documents that the Biden team have released, as I've been doing, you don't see specific companies named there, uh, but you do see specific topic areas. And it's mostly around PPE, you know, the the N95 masks, the gloves, the gowns, all of that. And remember, uh, you know, they don't have to order companies to manufacture certain things, but they can prioritize the federal purchases uh, in the sort of queue, so to speak, at the companies and say, you know, we're, we're cutting in line in front of all of your other customers here and we want to get this PPE for ourselves. So that's one of the things that they can do. But I think if you, if you look at it, it's going to be around that uh, medical equipment area where they say they're still woefully short in terms of PPE across the country. And then the, just the second follow up was the mention of schools and daycare centers. Typically, of course, those have been controlled by the state at the state level. How is that going to work? Because clearly there are some states that have decided to shutter their schools or decide to do them online um, for whatever reason. Are we going to be seeing, you know, battles flare up around the country about how to how to handle this? You know, I don't think so. I mean, if you listen to what the Biden team is saying, they're saying that they want to have Uh, They want to put the schools in a position to be able to safely reopen. This isn't going to be, they say, a lecture from the White House saying open up or else. This is going to be how can we get you the materials you need to open up? How can we make sure that your teachers in your area have the vaccinations that they need to go back into the school buildings, uh, the PPE that they need to make sure that there's social distancing uh, and, and a clean environment for people inside these schools? Hey, Eamon, I want to go back to the Defense Production Act and the idea that it would be invoked for the government to cut the line, the federal government to cut the line and buy the PPE. It sounds like a simple fix, but my guess is it's not. It was a problem that the federal government didn't have the PPE ordered. It was a problem that the federal government wasn't not only procuring it and then wasn't giving it out. 
as a result, you had states trying to get their own PPE. You had hospitals yeah. trying to get their own per personal protective equipment. You had companies trying to get their own personal protective equipment. And they've done a decent job in a lot of places of, of doing just that. If the government now comes in and says, we're cutting the line in front of the states, the hospitals, the companies, the private companies that have all done this, then what happens? Then everybody who has secured PPE and thinks they have their line of doing that now has to say, wait, I'm going to go to the federal government and wait in line and hope that I get it there. It sounds like it's replacing one mess with potentially an even bigger mess. Who's the we who yeah, doesn't look, have there's it? Always yeah, there's always unintended consequences when you do any of these things. And, and there is sort of this uh, hodgepodge system that's developed. What the Biden team is saying here is that there's just not enough PPE in the areas of greatest need. So uh, what they're going to do is step in with the federal government and try to iron all of that out. Uh, and you're right, that might displace some people who've been able to figure it out for themselves. But one of the things that, that people talk about with this PPE issue, when you have all the states bidding against each other and scrambling to get this directly from suppliers, what you end up is in is a bidding war to bid up the prices. And the, and the states and communities that can afford to pay the highest prices are the ones uh, that end up benefiting here. Eamon, thank you very much. Eamon Javers. That could have a big impact on individual state recoveries. Joining us now, Governor Chris Sununu of New Hampshire. I want to do a day in the life uh, type segment. What are you, when you, okay, you're already working, but when you get done with this, what are you going to do? What do you need to do today in New Hampshire for, for COVID right now? What's on, what can you do? Tell me. Uh, vaccines. Yeah. So we're all on the vaccines. We're opening up phase 1B tomorrow. Uh, folks in New Hampshire can pick up the phone at eight o'clock tomorrow morning. So we know our system is going to have an onslaught of maybe even a couple hundred thousand people. Uh, registering for the vaccine, signing up if you're 65 and over. We've made it really, really easy, which is a great thing, but it also means that you're going to get an onslaught into your system because a lot of folks want it. So we're really focusing on making sure that the logistics are in place so we can deliver. It's, we're, as you know, we're limited by what we get from the federal government with vaccine. We're very, very limited. So we can get it out logistically on our end. But now that we're going to 1B, these larger populations, uh, a lot of them are elderly. Maybe they don't have great Internet access. You know, do they have easy access to the phones? What's our switchboard going to be like to sign them? All those actual logistics to make things happen. Uh, you can get all the vaccine in the world, but if you can't put needles in arms, it's not going to work. So what do you need from the Biden, the new administration? What do you need? Flexibility. Flexibility. Trust me, states know what, how to do it better than the federal government does. And that's the key word I think a lot of us, Republicans and Democrats, are looking for uh, out of the Biden administration. I didn't hear a whole lot of it yesterday, but that's okay. Uh, we're still hopeful down the road. St governors can manage. Uh, most can. Um, you know, I'm, we're not, I'm not looking for, for big handouts from the government. I know Governor Cuomo has just made his announcement, if I don't get $15 billion, I'm raising taxes. Most states are not in that position. I can tell you here in New Hampshire, I'm presenting a budget next month. We're cutting taxes across the board. We have a very strong economy. We've kept our COVID numbers low. Uh, it's not easy. We got to manage, but we've done it. And, uh, and that makes us more attractive to businesses and families coming in. And ultimately, this is important because it creates that economic opportunity for those families. You get them the vaccine, you open things up. I'm a big believer 2021 is going to be a great, great summer. Um, but you have to make it a great summer. You have to you know, manage yourself to that. The, we heard the darkest days are, are, are still ahead. It maybe we're, I mean, we did peak yesterday was a, a record in deaths because of the, the holidays, uh, the residual. But are there signs that, that that is easing? And are you optimistic with the vaccine that, that maybe we are on the other side of, of this? I am very optimistic. I, I got to be honest. 
When you talk about dark days, you talk about the spirit of America. You talk about the attitude. I think people are very hopeful ahead. We will have a lot more fatalities. We will still see some, some elevated levels in hospitalizations. But those numbers, at least in the Northeast and especially New Hampshire, they seem to have peaked. They're on a downswing. As more vaccine comes out, the most vulnerable part of our population. You know, here in New Hampshire, and I, it's about the same for America, 65 and older accounts for about 95 to 98% of the unfortunate fatalities. If you get that population alone vaccinated, you put a huge shield and a huge protector around the biggest part of this crisis, which is hospitalizations and fatalities. You don't have to vaccinate every person in this country to get out of this, not by any means. You gotta take care of the most vulnerable, make sure they come first for the right reasons. And if you do that, I really believe in the next few months, not years, but months, we're coming out of this. Some of the, the things that, that are on the plate for, for near term, not just, and I'm not talking about just COVID, I'm talking about some of the, the economic uh, uh, proposals. There's 1.9 trillion that we're talking about. Uh, there's a $15 minimum wage. Would, would, would that work in, in New Hampshire? No. Uh, look, it's a disaster. A 15, I have one of the strongest economies in the country. We just t tie ourselves to the federal minimum wage because virtually no one in New Hampshire makes minimum wage. It's, we have such a strong economy. We have some of the highest wages in the country. We have one of the lowest poverty rates in the country. Um, $15 minimum wage throws all of that up in the air because... People think it just brings people from $7 to 15, which most businesses couldn't handle. It would cut hours and cut jobs, especially in a tourism-driven state, a seasonal state like New Hampshire. It would be devastating. So then you add on to the fact that the guy making 18 now has to go to 23, and the guy making 23 now has to go, now has to, go to 38. The inflationary problem that that creates in small business, I used to run my own business, and I could tell you at the time, I used to be able to tell you to the quarter, right, if, if, if minimum wage were to move, what it would have meant to my company. Every business owner is doing that right now. $15 minimum wage would be a disaster, especially here in New Hampshire. Why don't we know about the, the effects of this? Because I, I have people that come on uh, from, from, you know, the proponents of it and people that, that don't want to do it. And they both have all these facts and studies that are done. The other side says that it immediately goes into consumers' um, uh, pockets and immediately starts spreading through the economy and you're building from the, uh, from the ground up for, for the low end uh, of wage they know. earners. And, no, and, I, I, yeah, they know. And you hear they that? Know. They, look, look at what happened in Seattle. Look what happened in San Francisco. Look what happened to some of these states that made these kind of drastic moves. And you were not talking about going from 7 to 11. We're talking about going 780 or whatever it staged, is. Staged. To 15. Yeah, yeah. not right away. Staged. But, and then the other side says, you know what the real minimum wage is? Zero. If you lose 3 million jobs or 4 million jobs, then, then you're at a, you know, the minimum wage for the, you can't raise that. Um, it, it doesn't help any. I don't know. It, it just, it, we're, we're rushing into it. We're going to do it, it looks like, doesn't it, Governor? Uh, I, I hope not, because, again, what happens in New Hampshire economically for businesses might be very different than Mississippi or California or New York. To set this minimum bar, which is incredibly high, it's an incredibly high threshold for so many businesses to overcome, something has to give. Somebody has to pay, right? Go ask Ann Rand. Read a few books. It, it proves itself out. And ultimately, jobs have to be lost. Hours have to be lost. Something has to get cut back. And usually it's the lowest wage earners that get cut back first because they don't have the experience. It's the high school kids that can't get the summer job anymore or, or the intern that can't, uh, you know, has to intern for another two years because they can't pay that lower wage uh, individual to get that experience. So it has a it's not just economic, but it's really that, that work experience that you need to build a strong workforce and economy. We, we don't have enough employees in this country right now. 
right? Every, every business that is struggling to get employees is paying every dollar they can to put people on the line to get people in their shop. So minimum wage, they're, what they're trying to do is get a political win on something that isn't a fundamental problem, in this, in, at least in, in New Hampshire right now. Go- Governor, I, I just I was struck by something you said earlier, and I'm a New Yorker, so I, I, I took offense. So I, I wanted to just ask you, why didn't you just take a shot uh, at, at the governor of New York for asking for money at a time when clearly New York has been uh, harder hit than, for example, your own state? You talk about uh, trying to help those that are in need. Clearly, the state of New York has been affected by this in a way that yours has not. And at the same time, I would suggest to you that New York is a quote unquote giver in terms of federal taxes uh, to the system and your own state is a taker. Uh, Look, somebody has to pay for that 15 billion that he's coming with his handout for good management. And no, no, but, but, no, but New York has been paying for your handout every his Hold bill. On. Why Governor, should I pay his bill? Governor, New York has been paying your bills is the point. The point is that New York has been paying your bills for years. So look, I, I, it, it makes no sense. So the but the issue I have is actually for New Yorkers. The citizens of New York pay 60, 70 percent more in taxes than the citizens of New Hampshire. And yes, guess what? They're leaving New York in droves. The businesses, their families, they're all coming to places like New Hampshire. And if the only answer for your governor is to say, I'm coming with my handout, give me 15 billion or else I'll raise taxes to give that type of threat on behalf of his own citizens, what he's going to do to his citizens if Joe Biden doesn't help him out. That's not leadership. That's not leadership. That's pathetic. And he has to be held accountable for it because guess what? I got to pay it and you got to pay it. And the rest of the country has to pay his bill. Governor, I'm not with, asking governor, the rest of the country respect, to pay my with, bill. With, with, respect, the, with respect, the state of New Hampshire has had its handout for years. You've been taking money what? from states Tell like New York and California for years. And, and, and I would suggest to you that, that recommending what the governor of New York should be doing. Look, there's lots of challenges in the state of New York. But in the giver and taker uh, situation, it's, I think it's clear, it's empirical uh, who's giving and who's taking. I don't want a penny out of the federal government to replace my revenues. He's demanding $15 billion. He, he's demanding 15 times the, the, the you mega, take the federal money power, constantly power more than you give to the government. I mean, you, Wait, it, it's, how it's, are we it's taking an, more? What are, you that on? what are you basing that on? How are we taking more from the federal government? Where, 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 what do you, what do you look at that? the federal federal tax receipts coming out of the state of New Hampshire versus the amount of federal money coming into the state of New Hampshire? OK, OK. But again, this isn't about this is about what he's doing to the citizens of New York. And they should be outraged. They should be furious that he cannot manage like most of the other governors have done. I'm not. Look, I'm cutting taxes in this state. I'm creating opportunity because it's not about bigger government. It's not about bigger systems. It's about giving efficiency to the system so they can provide the services that are needed at a fundamental level and letting people have that economic freedom. And that way the whole system rises. He's missed the boat completely on that. Look, I'm not here just to I didn't I didn't get on to try to take a shot at Andy, but. The fact of the matter is, is that we all have to pay there, for that. There, and that's what I don't think Washington understands. It's Andrew. Oh, no, no. You're talking about Cuomo. OK, never mind. Uh, it, 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 I, I thought you you know, a couple of Andrews. We're all confused now. Anyway, thank you, uh, Governor Sununu. Next on Squawk Pod, what's in store for big tech under President Biden? Journalist Joanne Lippman on why the old attitudes and excuses in Silicon Valley may not hold up in 2021. Look what's happened just in the last couple of months where the tech firms really have aggressively cracked down on misinformation around the election, around COVID. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. 
like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Support for this program is provided by Chevron. Methane management is a critical part of achieving a lower carbon future. Chevron is taking action to keep methane in the pipe. Their 2028 upstream methane intensity target is set to be 53% below the 2016 baseline. They're committed to evolving facility designs and operating practices. And they've trialed over 13 advanced detection technologies, including drones and satellites. That's energy in progress. Learn more at chevron.com slash methane. You're listening to Squawk Pod with Becky Quick, Andrew Ross Sorkin, and Joe Kernan. As Joe Biden settles into the Oval Office, tech leaders and tech investors are awaiting first signs of his plans for Silicon Valley giants. In the last year, big tech players, Facebook, Twitter, Google, and Amazon, have come under fire in Washington, both from lawmakers on Capitol Hill and from former President Donald Trump. The scrutiny has mostly revolved around big tech's alleged monopoly power and Section 230 of the 1996 Communications Decency Act. That is the legal framework that ensures that these technology companies are not responsible for what's posted on their platforms. It's what distinguishes Facebook's news feed from a traditional news outlet like ours at CNBC, regulation-wise. In general, you know, we've tried to distinguish ourselves as um, probably being one of the tech companies that is the most protective of giving people a voice and free expression overall. Um, th- there, are, there are clear lines um, that, that map to specific harms and damage um, that, that can be done where we take down the content. But, but overall, um, including compared to some of the other companies, um, we try to be more on the side of giving people a voice and free expression. That was Mark Zuckerberg on CNBC, of course. Let me be clear. We approach our work without political bias, full stop. To do otherwise would be contrary to both our business interests and our mission, which compels us to make information accessible to every type of person, no matter where they live or what they believe. And that was Sundar Pichai testifying in front of Congress in October. In the last year of President Trump's term, he signed an executive order pushing for a Section 230 rollback. Thank you very much. We're here today to defend free speech. And shortly afterward, the Department of Justice unveiled its own proposal for a Section 230 rollback to Congress. Shortly after that, Facebook, in its first move of the sort, removed a Trump re-election campaign ad that showed a symbol once used by Nazis. And that was all before the cascade of big tech flags and censors that eventually led to Donald Trump's suspension from Google's YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. With the rise, fall, and rise again of conservative social platforms like Gab and Parler, Joe Biden has inherited a social media landscape that has never been so fractured and so contested. Here's Andrew. Joining us right now to talk about what's next for the industry, Sarah Fisher, Axios media reporter, and Joanne Lippman, distinguished fellow for journalism at the Institute for Advanced Study in Princeton, of course, a CBC contributor as well. Sarah, uh, you're, you're a Washington Denzian at this point. Uh, help us understand how you think, for example, 230 uh, will be uh, addressed, if it will at all, 
in a different way, in the same way, in a more stringent way or aggressive way under a Biden administration? Yeah, well, they're going to be under more pressure to address it after the Capitol siege. We heard a lot of people talk about ways conspiracies and misinformation played into real world harm. And so we know that the Biden administration cares a lot about it. Remember, Biden also said that he personally thinks we should revoke the law. Now, President Trump, who had a wavering stance but later said we should revoke it, also held this position. But what's different is that the Biden administration, you can imagine with a Democratic majority in the House and now in the Senate, is going to heed that call from Biden much more than you would hear in the Trump administration. The problem, though, Andrew, when it comes to Section 230 is that while there's bipartisan consensus we need to tackle it, there is no consensus about what we would replace it with. And I think everyone is in agreement that just completely removing the law, which is a very progressive view, would open us up to a lot of different changes in the Internet that I don't even know our economy or our national security is ready for. Hey, Joanne, one of the things, you know, we talk about Section 230 and this idea of liability protection or no liability protection, it's a very theoretical, almost philosophical question, but we rarely talk about the practical aspects of how you could not just enforce it, but how the companies themselves could transition to a, a place where they could actually control what kind of language appears on their systems, given the amount of the rapidity of the content that's coming out. We all talk about editors, but you think about just could, could it even work in practice? And, and I'm curious whether you think between AI and everything else that this is a real conversation or, or this is something that's actually just impractical. Yeah, thanks, Andrew. I, I actually do think that this is practical, more practical now than it was four years ago than it ever has been before. And, you know, the reason for this is we have been hearing for years from the tech firms that they are completely unable to do anything about this fire hose of content, and that's why they needed this uh, Section 230 protection, liability protection, um, because it was just too much. It was too massive. But the fact is, look what's happened just in the last couple of months where the tech firms really have aggressively cracked down on misinformation around the election, around COVID. Um, they flagged information. And there's a couple of really important points here. And one is, first of all, they are acting as an editor, as a publisher of information by choosing and making these value judgments uh, for the rest of us. That's, that's you know, one issue. And the second is, look, they're proving that also they have the ability to do this. Uh, the technology is just exploding in terms of artificial intelligence, in terms of what we are able to do with it. So my guess is I would agree it seems very unlikely, despite what Biden has said, that they would actually revoke Section 230 altogether. Uh, that would just cause a, a, a huge chaos, morass. Uh, but I would, I, would be, um, I would actually expect to see some reforms. And at the end of the day, my my assumption, my guess would be that the tech platforms are going to end up looking uh, a lot closer, at least a little closer to traditional publishers where they do have some responsibility for the content that they publish. Right. Uh, 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 Sarah, real quick, uh, before we let you go, in terms of breaking up these companies, antitrust enforcement, um, Macon Delrahim's replacement has yet to be named. Uh, what kind of person do you expect to be put into that role and how aggressive do you anticipate that they might be? 
Yeah, well, Macon Deller, he was interesting. He was very focused on media and content in particular. That was his passion. In fact, he brought investigations into some media mergers that I was completely surprised to see. But I think the replacement is going to be somebody who has experience with antitrust in the private sector. And remember, Merrick Garland, who's going to be in that AG position once confirmed, has that experience. And that's going to bring a lot of credibility to the department's lawsuit against Google. The other thing I just want to mention here is that the FTC is also something to watch. It's had a Republican majority for the past few years. We expect it to go to have a Democratic majority, which might mean that they'll take a much more progressive view on things like privacy. And the FTC, of course, is the one that's looking into Facebook as well as Amazon. Okay. Sarah and Joanne, thank you uh, for joining us Thanks. this morning. Appreciate it very, very much, as always. Volatile trading in Bitcoin continuing this morning. It's been down 10% or more at certain points this morning. Bitcoin was as high as you might remember at $42,000 earlier this month, uh, down about $10,000 uh, in total since then. This morning, off about, call it 8%, 8 uh, down to about $32,282. So uh, we've talked about how wild the swings have been. It has been on a wild ride up, and uh, we'll see uh, if there's a floor here. Joe? Yes. Always is a floor, right? It just scares uh, you. Well, the other thing is, you know, you can't, you know, if be. you ever make a mistake, you, you can't fall off the floor. So you, uh, that's what I always, you know, whenever, whenever things are going badly, I always say to myself, you can't fall off the floor. Trap door. Trap door. Uh, hidden hidden <laughs> trap door. Or one of those, uh, remember when you were a kid, when, when you dig a hole, you know, because you're going to catch a rabbit or something? I mean, not your rabbit. I know you have a nice bunny. But, you know, and you put the spikes in, you put the grass over the top of it, and, you know, you're, you think you're going to actually, never works. You never really catch anything. I, but there could be I, a false I, I floor. Remember. You didn't do that out in the woods? Yeah. Becky, Kyle's, yeah. Got, Kyle's got one right now in the back. Yeah. What, what happened with your childhood? Uh, and you, Let me ask you this. Did you ever put a box up with a stick and a carrot on a string tied to the box and hope that the, the rabbit goes in and pulls the stick we out? We did that a few months ago. Doesn't okay. work. Uh, you know what? I see I'm getting Especially nowhere. Becky, I'm glad you're corner. here. <laughs> I'm, glad, I'm glad you're here. Uh, you know what uh, I did? I used to do the things with the cups I don't know if as I like a know. telephone with a string, a cup with a oh, telephone yeah, yeah. string to sit. Yeah, yeah I, I did, did that. Some things. That okay. Yep, okay. <laughs> okay, good. You know, All right. All I right. grew up, I was a little was bit of a city boy, you have to remember. So. City boy, city boy. That's Squawk Pod for today. Thanks for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern and subscribe to Squawk Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you listen. When you subscribe, you get Squawk Pod in your feed every day and can listen anytime. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 